Welcome to part two of Activating a Life on Mission with Mike Gerald. Please contact us if you have any questions. God is good. God is love. There is, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Think about that verse. That is profound. That God has taken those who are subject to lifelong slavery in their fear of death, and he has conquered death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's defeated. Wild. It's a great uh, quote. Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. Wow. It is finished. What is finished needs nothing else. I had just a couple thoughts to recap. Um, I think that oftentimes I'll hear something like this. Are you saying that we can do whatever we want? Whenever you talk about grace so radically, people are going, are you saying we can do whatever we want? And my answer is this, yes. You can do whatever you want, and you do whatever you want, and God allows people in their freedom to do whatever they want, and he doesn't stop loving them, but man, you can make one big mess. I think we make a mistake when we connect our choices and morality to God's love and favor. You've got grace here that God loves us while we're yet sinners, while we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He loves us. He forgives us. He showers his grace upon us. He's for us and nothing can separate us, not even our sin. But then over here you go, so why would I not sin? Well, why would you not put your hand in a blender? Because it hurts, right? Because sin actually creates turmoil and pain and relational distance and a mess, right? But it doesn't mean that the Father doesn't love us. He continues to love us while we struggle and fail and We've got to continue to to share good news of a God who loves us even while we're broken and dead and struggling. And as Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And I'm the chief of sinners. And I've got this thorn in the flesh that that I've, I've wanted to overcome, this problem that I just can't get past. And yet God's grace is sufficient. He continues to to love me and pour his grace out toward me. So I think it's really important to make that distinction of you don't want to sin because sin kills us and kills other people and creates harm and pain and all of that. However, you don't want to think that if you screw up or fail that that will cause God to not love you or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers or whoever. I would like us to just uh, kind of take a take a moment in prayer, maybe with a few people around you, and just kind of listen for a moment. I think prayer is both communicating with God, but also hearing from God. And so with the people around you, maybe you got two, 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 two at these tables, um, kind of buddy up if you don't have someone. Just take a moment and be, and be still and say, God, so far, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me through, through that first hour, you know, as we revisited the good news? What is the Spirit of God saying to you? 
And just listen for a minute and, and allow God to surface some things. What's, what's something that's coming to the surface through that first conversation? Let's listen to God for a moment. And then after I give it a few minutes, I'll guide you into the next piece. But just listen for a moment. What is God saying to you so far? Okay, now I want you to, just with a few people around you, share what God's saying to you so far. What are you hearing? If not everyone has shared, give someone else a chance to share. What are you hearing?
Okay, now I'd like to shift it. I'd like to shift it, guys, if, uh, if you could follow, if you could follow this instruction. Listen carefully, I want you to, I want you to communicate to God, not to the people that you're with. So you're, you're communicating to God, God, I love this about you. So, so what you want to avoid is saying, Ian, I love this about God. You want to look directly to God and say, God, I love this about you. So with those that you're seated around, I want you to take a moment and just tell God what you like about him. Go ahead. God, we just love you so much. But really, we're responding to your love because you loved us first. You made us. You've adopted us. Chosen us before the foundations of the world. You desire to, to sit in our presence and enjoy us. And we desire to sit in your presence and enjoy you. We thank you that you are here present with us right now. We thank you, Father, that you love us. We thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from that love. We thank you, Jesus, for being the perfect representation of the Father. The exact imprint. We thank you that because we've seen you, we've seen the Father. We thank you, Spirit, that you are over all and in all and through all, that you're with us, that you're leading us, that you're speaking to us, that you're present with us. And we ask that you just work in our hearts, that you'd save us and shield us from our own pride, from the deceit of the deceiver, the father of lies who wants us to think that you're not for us, that you don't love us, that we're separated from you, that we're not filled with your spirit. And instead, we just ask that you would free us from the heavy weight and burden of feeling like we got to do all this stuff to achieve or attain your favor. And instead, that we would be motivated not because of all the stuff we have to do, but that we would be motivated by joy set before us. That we would live out this 
poema, this art, this beauty that you've invited us into. I thank you that we get to spend a morning together just sitting with you and with each other. And I just echo your prayer in John 17 that we would be one, that we would be perfectly one. God, that you would take away any sense of superiority, that you would take away any sense of judgment, that you would take away any sense of comparison. And then instead we would remember the same God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that empowered the ministry of Jesus is in us. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this day. Amen. I'm going to take a moment and just ask for any feedback or questions from either what you heard from God, what I shared this morning, anything you'd like some clarity on, any key learnings before we move on. So go ahead. Yeah. Yep. And then Jesus says, No one condemns you. Go and be perfect. And yep. Yep. And then I didn't get the rest because I got stuck there. Yep. So please. Sure. Can you explain that a little further and help me understand that? Absolutely. The rhythm that you see in Jesus is grace you can't refuse and then commands you can't keep, which takes you back to grace you can't refuse. Notice this, Jesus never says improve. Jesus always says be perfect. Go and never sin again. You must be holy as I am holy. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you must be perfect as your father is perfect. So he's telling us to do something we can't do, which leads us to a crisis of capacity. I can't do that. And then we go, wait, I don't need improvement. I need a savior. And so we end up, rather than trying to improve ourselves, achieve, climb a ladder, we end up returning to Jesus who is the freshwater well, who is the manna from heaven, who is our life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Jesus is life. He is hope. He is salvation. He is the way. He doesn't point us to a way. He is it. He doesn't point us to salvation in ourselves. He said, I have done it. Do you believe me? So he's just inviting us to trust in his finished work. And every time people got caught up in morality and improvement and performance, Jesus said, not good enough. I want to be a good dad. Not good enough. Got to be the perfect dad. But I'm not. I know. You have a perfect father. I'm perfectioning your place. I got you. Trust me. Believe me. This is the will of God is that you would believe me. Believe in the one that I sent. And I think we get tripped up when we turn it into moralism and self-improvement. Remember, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And you look throughout scripture, it's always broken, sinful, imperfect people, regular, uneducated, common men and women who have been with Jesus. That's us. Not many among you were mighty or wise, right? I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I am the chief of sinners. Because the language is always like, I decrease, he increases. I'm just pointing there. Okay? There's nothing impressive about me. He is my life. That's it. He's got you. The weight and the pressure is off. Which I think is beautiful because then we can enjoy serving God, not because we're trying to get him to love us, but because he already does. We're not like doing all this stuff so we go, God, are you proud of me? He's like, you don't have to do any of that. 
It is finished. Selah, rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It is done. Rest in the finished work of the one who loves you. Now, what do you want to do? What would excite you? Who else needs good news? Who would you like to spend time with? What are things you'd like to see change? It's an invitation for us to do things that are beautiful, that are artistic, that bring beauty to brokenness. That's the invitation. Not to somehow attain to the righteousness that's already been gifted to us. It was given to us. We have no righteousness of our own. It was given to us. And so, ah, we get to rest. And every time the the religious Pharisees would, would trip people up, it would be stuff like this. You lay heavy burdens on their shoulders that are too hard to bear. And you won't even lift a finger. It's like... I've come that they would rest, that they'd have life in me. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. I love to go on about that one for sure because I need it. Like, I just need it. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that. Uh, could you repeat it for the recording too? I don't. I don't know if I could repeat it well. Say, Love God and do as you please. That's what Augustine said. Yeah. Um, I. Th- I think that. I think that our tendency is I'll, I'll give a parable Jesus told. You've, you've got a man who's at the temple who is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? And he's beating his chest. And then you've got the guy next to him who's saying, God, I thank you. And he's thanking God for his growth, for his spirituality and his growth and the fact that he's, he's no longer like that. He's not like that man. He's, he's changed. He's sanctified. He's growing. He's doing the right things. He's tithing. He's attending services, all that kind of stuff. God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I do all these good and godly things, right? And, and Jesus says that the man who beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, a sinner, went away righteous, not this guy. And I think that uh, if you were to follow this man who beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, a a sinner, if you were to follow him home, what do you want to see him doing in the next week? Changing. Changing. Yep. You want to see him changing. You want to see him give back the money that he stole from other people. You want to see reform in his life. You want to see good behavior. You want to see church attendance. You want to see tithing. In essence, you want to bring him back to the temple like the guy that he was standing next to that wasn't acceptable. Do you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is we think that if we take the prodigal son and we make him the older brother, it's progress. Understand? The, the, the older brother in the prodigal story who's going, I've been with you this whole time serving you and I, and I didn't run away and I didn't squander like all of my estate with loose living. I've, I've been obedient to you and you didn't even give me a young goat which was symbolic of the Pharisees that are going, we've been with you and we've been obeying the scriptures and we've been tithing out of our spice rack and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is going, none of that matters. What, what, what do you not, what part of circumcision is of no value do you not understand? Your righteousness is filthy rags. Not, none of that counts. It's my righteousness in your place. And I, and I think we have to just really become more 
captured by the love and the grace of God that then motivates us to, uh, it, I wouldn't say motivate, it actually creates in us love for others. So let me, let me say it this way, and this is gonna sound super nuanced, but I think it's really important. I, I can like wrangle the flesh into obedience to like be moral. And the Pharisees did it too. They wrangled the flesh into obedience to be moral and attend gatherings and give money and help the poor. The Pharisees did all those things really well. What you cannot create or manufacture is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. You can't manufacture that, okay? So I can do the right actions, but I can go from bad actions to good actions without transformed heart, right? And my point is, that's not progress. What we want is we want to be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but it's his life that takes up residence in us. And so let me put it this way. When I love someone else, all my good deeds are like filthy rags, right? And, you know, I I think so oftentimes we do all these good things, but when we go back and introspect, you go, do I really love people? Or do I love people loving me? And I use the appearance of loving people to get that. I think that probably more often than not, most of my good deeds are just a cocktail of sin and kindness and good action and bad motivation all the time. Right? Wretched man that I am. That's always true. Now, there are moments where I don't think that you necessarily prepare for in advance, but you can kind of look back and go, I sort of feel like that was a beautiful meal and that I loved that person and I didn't talk over them and I didn't need to be impressive and I felt like I just really enjoyed them and was interested in their story and it just sort of felt like a gift. It's almost like God gave me his eyes to see this person and to love them well and to be present. And that was a gift. I don't even really feel like I can take credit for it. I don't feel like I did it or earned it. It sort of felt like it was given to me. Does that make sense? There are these times where I think that God gifts us with these moments where we sort of get a thin space of heaven meeting earth where we, where we feel the presence of God and others and feel love or compassion or generosity. And it isn't with a string attached. It isn't to feel better. It isn't for, to get something back or anything like that. And I think those are the gifts of God. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I'll, I'll use one more example. We had a neighbor who was very difficult. And, you know, when we say that we should love our neighbors, I think it means our actual neighbors too, right? And so we had a neighbor that was super difficult. And I remember going, uh, I, don't, um, I don't love my neighbor. So what I need to do is go get a gift card from Starbucks and a, a little card and write something kind and just take it up and give it to my neighbor because God says to love your neighbor, right? So I get this card and get a gift card and I walk over and I give it to my neighbor. Now my neighbor just gives me this like, like kind of like snarky look, kind of judgment, whatever. She's terrified, right? So, so, so then I go home and I sit down on my couch, what do you think I did? I complained about my neighbor to my wife. Okay? Did I actually love my neighbor? No, what happened is I realized that I wasn't loving my neighbor, so I went from bad activity to good activity without a changed heart. You feel me? I went from being the prodigal brother to the older brother, which was not progress. 
I went from being the guy that, you know, beat his chest in the temple to the guy that comes back with his scorecard the next week. And God says, no, I don't want any of that. So you know what I did next? I told God that I hated my neighbor. I confessed my sin. God, I don't love my neighbor. I want my neighbor to move to California. (laughs) At best, right? And you know what happens when we confess our sins? He forgives us. And humility, humility is the soil through which the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit grows. And so then some of that anger or judgment or frustration toward a neighbor is replaced with patience. But not because I tried harder, but because I told God I didn't like him. Because I was honest about my own brokenness. Does that make sense? I, th- I think it's important especially for me because I'm an achiever and my tendency is to skip a few steps and to tell people to go change the world. Let's go. Come on. Let's storm hell with a water pistol. Let's go. Like that's my tendency. And we got to slow down to get honest about our own motivations and our brokenness and our sin and our pain and all that. Yeah. Anything else? Any other reflections or key takeaways before we move on? Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to tell about the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to tell people about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, a glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Wow. Jesus is, I I heard a theologian say this, and I thought it was a great statement. Jesus is not the electric company of the world. I think sometimes we treat Jesus like the electric company of the world that we got to get people hooked up to so they get the power. He is the light of the world. He already lights up the whole world. And if you open up your eyes, you'll see. He's already there. He's already at work. In him, we live and move and have our being. He's not very far from any one of us. It's not like he doesn't show up until we get there. He's already doing something which is really beautiful. I think uh, to move on from our motivation to, I think the next word I'd use is incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God moved into the neighborhood. God is like Jesus. We know what God is like. He's like Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen him. I am what God is like, is what Jesus is saying. What is God like? God is like Jesus. Yes! Awesome! What's not to like about Jesus? Right? Who would you rather take on vacation with you? Jesus? Muhammad? Not so much. 
Trump, not so much. Jesus, absolutely. What's not to like about Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. He shows us what the Father is like. God and human flesh, now humans know what God is like because he lived on their street. He worked their job. He came home tired and sweaty. He had people complain. He ate. He walked the streets. He associated with all sorts of people. Now we know what God is like. I'll never forget we had a a friend who brought a girl that she was caring for. Um, She would do some home care work with this girl that was in a wheelchair. And the girl was in a wheelchair because she um, was a drug user and she ended up using a needle that gave her an infection that left her paralyzed from the waist down. And she had tats all over her, like, like demon tattoos. And she had her eyes where the whites of her eyes were dyed black. And she had um, her tongue split like a snake. And she had rods to do suspensions in her back. And she was an atheist that hated God that was in a wheelchair from her drug addiction. And so this girl who we had met because I met her dad, this is a German guy, I met him at a, at a coffee shop and then he ended up hanging around our house and brought his daughter and his daughter was caring for this woman. Um, well, his daughter brings this woman to our house for a barbecue and doesn't tell her that, that we talk about faith together and that we're sort of like her, her faith leaders. Doesn't tell her that until she's outside of our house right? So she's unloading this girl with her wheelchair in front of my house and says, oh, by the way, these people, they're sort of like my faith mentors and they like to talk about Jesus with me. And, and this, this girl was not happy. She was not happy that she had been bait and switched and brought to my house. She was like not, none too happy about that. So she got brought up you know, on my porch and into my house. And the first thing she said to me was, just so you know, I don't believe in any of this God. And then she, you know, was using curse words. And I said, that's cool. You like pork? (laughs) She's like, yeah. And I'm like, cool. We'll get along just great. I was making a bunch of barbecue stuff and we had music on and friends hanging out. It was just a barbecue. And... So I could see immediately, like, you know, she kind of calmed down because she could tell that I wasn't there to argue or fight with her. And so I could see her kind of chill out a little bit. And we, over the course of several months, she kept coming around, believe it or not. She had a good enough time at that barbecue that she kept coming around to other barbecues and parties and gatherings that we had. And she was very antagonistic toward Christianity and what we believed. And anytime anything would come up in random conversation in the backyard, in the kitchen, wherever, she just wanted to argue with us or fight with us. Um, But we didn't take the bait. And when people would have a conversation over here, she'd stay away from it it if it turned into a spiritual conversation. She'd stay away from it. Well, eventually... um, she ended up hearing us talk about Jesus. And when we talked about Jesus, we're talking about all this grace stuff that I was just talking about. And we're talking about how Jesus was a friend of sinners and that he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and drunks. And those, he, 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 he was among the broken so much so that people said that he was demon-possessed or that he was a drunk or a glutton because of his close association, because of the company he kept, because of the tables that he sat at. He was for these people. He loved these people. He ate with these people to the point where she started to think that she might like Jesus. And so she got to the point where she said this. She said, I hate God, but I like Jesus. 
And then I remember one night I'm, I'm reading and I, and I read that passage. It says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I said, a lot of people say that, you know, Jesus is like God. But I think the greater truth is that God is like Jesus. How do we know what God is like? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the perfect representation of the Father. What is God like? Like God is like Jesus. That's how we know what God is like. Who did he hang out with? What did he do? What did he say? How did he live? That's what God's like. And then she went, you know what? If God is like Jesus, I like God. And so this woman, very antagonistic, atheist woman, then says to her children, mommy was wrong about God not being real. God is very real. And then I baptized her in a public swimming pool. She brought her drug dealer and a bunch of friends. She quoted Jesus and Tupac at her baptism. It was the coolest thing. And I think that is the, the power of the gospel, is that people recognize that God in the person of Jesus has come not to condemn them, but to invite them around the table and absolve them of their sin and guilt and shame and throw a feast for them. That's the beauty, is the, that the light has come into the darkness. And then she immediately is just bringing all these other people. They're coming into my house. And they're like, during our time of confession, confessing to arson and stuff. I don't know what to do with that. Because people naturally share what they're excited about. Right? You don't have to tell me to go talk about the eagles. You have to tell me to talk about my family. Because I like them. And when people are so excited about good news, they pass on what they're enjoying. And then suddenly rooms start to fill up. Do you see the difference? Because I almost feel like when we talk about mission and trying to make a difference and motivating people out on mission, I think we try to get people to do something they don't want to do, oftentimes. But I think if we go back to the motivation of what is the good news that we are so captured by, you don't have to, at the end of someone eating a good steak, go, go tell your friends. You just tell your friends. You want a really good ribeye? Go here. Why? Because you're enjoying it. And so I think we delight ourselves in the Lord. We enjoy the light that is shining on us. And then we want others to experience the goodness and the freedom and the love and the light of Jesus that we are, that we are enjoying. I think that's really important. But I think it's less about you and I feeling like we have to figure something out and crack some code. And I think it's more about recognizing that we already live in a certain place. We already work in certain places. We already have certain hobbies. What would Jesus do if he lived in your home? What would he do differently? What would happen to your neighborhood if Jesus lived in your house? Are you tracking with me? What would happen if Jesus lived in your home? Would that be good news for your neighborhood? Oh, well, it's, I'm sort of tricking you right now. Because Christ is in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory for your neighborhood. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You are living stones. You are a holy temple. And so Jesus has moved into the neighborhood through his people. 
And I think it's less about us trying to do something, create something, manage something, make something happen. And it's more about having eyes to see. To look around and to see what Jesus sees. This is why he used this language of if, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, right? Just look again at your neighborhood. What would Jesus see? What would Jesus do? Jesus, what would you have for my neighbors? Who is lonely in this neighborhood? Jesus, if you lived in this neighborhood, who would no longer be lonely? Who needs help in this neighborhood? Jesus, if you lived in this neighborhood, who would you help? Sometimes it's as simple as, I'm watching the game. Who else needs to watch the game with me? We are having a meal. Who else needs to be around the table? It's like simple questions where it isn't so much of I got to push or manage or manufacture or plan or schedule. It's eyes to see what God sees as he looks at your neighborhood or your workplace, wherever you live or work or play. I think if we pay attention, if we listen, if we have soft eyes to see what God sees, it's right in front of us. The guy that invented the stethoscope said this, listen to your patients, they're telling you what the problem is. Listen to your neighborhood, listen to your coworkers. They're lonely. They got a terminal diagnosis. They're alienated from family members. They're tired. Does Jesus address those things? Does Jesus offer hope to those people? Right? You are the light of the world. You are the city set on a hill. You're already there. Thank God you people are there. Right? Thank God you get to be there. Because now your neighbors don't need to be without hope. Because they're people of life and light and hope that already happen to be there. Sleeper cells that are already in the neighborhood. Sleeper cells of hope, of grace, of good news, of kingdom. You go, wow, it's almost like the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against that, right? Because you guys already happen to inhabit the places where Jesus wants to be at work amongst these people that so desperately need hope. It's really good news. In our neighborhood, we've got a group of guys that have converted their garages into man caves. I'm serious. It's like we call it garage row. And they all sit out there and they watch sporting events and they drink together and laugh together and hang out together. And Jackie and I said, you know what? I think our neighborhood is our place of mission. I think this is the place where we already live. The spirit of God is already at work. I think we need to pay attention to what God is up to in these people and in this place. You know, I'm sitting around a fire pit and one of the guys, as I'm talking to him, says this, man, I had liver failure and someone else in this neighborhood gave a part of their liver to save me. And then my wife returned the favor by giving a part of her liver to save someone else on the other side of the neighborhood. And I went, you guys are giving livers away. Or parts of them. That's wild. You tell me that the kingdom of God isn't already at work in this neighborhood. What I need to do is connect the dots. What motivates that in a person's heart? It's as if God is already at work in you. Where does that love come from? It comes from the God who is love who sacrifices himself for the people that he loves. 
He's not very far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. We're dot connectors. We're just helping the light to come on, to say, look, he's already lighting up your life and your world. You already so desperately crave community, which is why you've, you've made a bunch of bars out of your garages and you're giving away livers. My goodness, this is beautiful. Let me just tell you, Jesus is at work here and in you and in this. Isn't that beautiful? We have the opportunity to help people become aware of the God who is already at work in their life. And it's fun. Um, I'll say this, it's been 12 years living in that neighborhood and it took a long time before a number of those people opened up to us. I think many of us, we want to see God work, but we want it to happen two weeks ago. We're impatient, right? We're pushy. If we don't see results right away, we quit. What does it say about God that he moved into the neighborhood and lived there for 30 years and nobody noticed God? God is literally walking the streets, passing people in human flesh, unrecognized. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him or recognize. That's just Mary and Joseph's son. They didn't even notice. He's working as a carpenter probably from about the time he's 10 to about the time he's 30 before he started this earthly ministry, living for 20 years working a blue-collar job in the neighborhood, and you only get a couple verses about him during that whole time. What if we just were very present for 20 years in our workplace, in our neighborhood? What if we were watching and listening, like the stethoscope? Where are these people hurting? What are they saying? What is God up to? What about this place needs to change? God, I pray for your kingdom to come in this neighborhood as it is in heaven. What, what do you want to see different about this neighborhood, about this workplace, about my friend circle? Eyes to see that stuff, right? 12 years. You know, in the process, we got hazed. We did. When we had this lady in who had demon tattoos and her eyes dyed black and her tongue split and all that. We had neighbors saying, when you bring people like that into your home, you bring them into our neighborhood. Don't you have somewhere where you can put them? So we had neighbors that were against us. We've had to like weather all that. And I could say this, I've been critiqued because I'm a sinner and I probably deserved it. But I've never been persecuted for righteousness sake until we love people that close to home. And so it is one of those beautiful and also challenging things when you say, I want to take up my cross and live this way of life. It's going to challenge you. But it's beautiful. I'll still remember there was a guy that was coming over to our house who was couch surfing and uh, homeless. And he would, he would spin around in circles and he would jump up and tap the ceiling and he'd fall asleep as we're talking and eating. And, you know, he had all kinds of issues that he was dealing with. But I remember one night, because he was a lingerer, and I would always just want him to leave. Like, when's he going to go so I can watch the Phillies and Jackie's getting the kids in bed and all that? And I'm like, when's this guy going to go? And the one night he looked at me and he said, I always felt like I was invisible. And now I feel like I have a family. I felt this big. Then he left and then I cried. I'm like, while he's saying I finally feel like a family, in that moment I was thinking, when are you going to leave? Right? But thank God that he works through the foolishness (laughs) of men. 
and the mission has shaped me, has taught me how much I'm not like Jesus. I think sometimes we think we got to grow and change and then we can go live this way like aces, like we got it all together. Now, I think the mission itself changes us. It reveals things about us. It shows us where we're broken. It grows us. There's something beautiful. In fact, I think we're going to struggle to become mature without taking those steps outside of our comfort zone. Got to move into the danger zone with Jesus. That's where we grow. That's where we stretch. That's where God does beautiful things, things we would never imagine, never imagine. And I'll tell you who's our, our big evangelist. Oh, she's not in here anymore. Little Elise. There she is. That girl has probably brought half the, half the people that hang out at our house, around our house. And it's, it, it's be, look at her, she's so cute. <laughs> kids will do that. So many people are like, how do you do this with kids? I'm like, I don't know if we'd have half these people around if it wasn't for her. She brings them all in. She, she invites all of her friends to hang out and her parents come over and they're all hanging out. And, and Addie, who's 16 years old, we're sitting out on my back patio and she says, hey, can you come inside for a minute? I'm like, okay. I come in and she says, my friend has some questions about Jesus. And I find out that she and her three friends who are cheerleaders on the high school football team are all sitting in my living room talking about Jesus. How beautiful is that? I go inside and I'm talking about Jesus with her friends. She is an ambassador of the kingdom to these high school cheerleader friends that she has. And they'll even come over to our house without her and sit around the table with Jackie and I and talk about faith. Isn't that beautiful? And none of them would say that that's a terrible um, something they don't enjoy, bur- burdensome. They'd say, we like doing this. It's fun for us to have friends and to share what we love with people that we like. Why wouldn't we want to do that? I think for many of us, it's breaking out of that muscle memory. It's learning to become friends of sinners. It's learning to, whenever we go into a place, we eat whatever's put before us. We don't come with our script. We don't come with, a, with two tunics. We don't come with a bag and a change of clothes. We go in ready to receive the hospitality of others. So she has this little friend, Mia. And her little friend, Mia, her dad is this guy, Sang, a Chinese guy who lives seven or eight houses up. And they have us over to watch the Eagles game And this guy breaks out a $600 bottle of Japanese whiskey to share with me. Now, when he does that, I think, I'm in. (laughs) This guy likes me. Because you don't do that if you don't like someone, right? This is like persons of peace. This is eat whatever's put in front of you. Sometimes it's fun right? But it's also, we, we show them that they have value because they want to bless us too. They want to serve us too. They want to extend their tables too. Sometimes I think in our arrogance, we think that we've got to go to these poor sinners and do all the serving. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is let them serve you and show them that they have value. It's called friendship. Sometimes you help them. Sometimes they help you. Sometimes you listen to them. They listen to you. You eat with them. When they have needs, you care for them. And so we've watched God work in our neighborhood. And then we've seen things happen all over the place. If you go, God's kingdom come in this place as it is in heaven, you end up with a guy who opens up a brewery for the sake of mission and sees all these people come to faith And when waitresses get stiffed, 
they leave them a ridiculous tip. And when somebody died in the restaurant, they even held a funeral at the restaurant because that's the place of faith in that part of the city. You've got a woman who opens up a cosmetology school for the sake of mission. She busts a human trafficking ring because they traffic girls through hair and nails. She tells me when I go to sit down with her and some of her girls that four girls have come to faith in Jesus in the past week. You got an older lady who came out of a very traditional church background that's now going with a group of women into the tent city to serve the homeless every week. They serve for six and a half hours every weekend. They know the names of the people. They know who's gluten-free. They know who's dairy-free. They know what sizes they are. They sit with them all day long and love them and listen to them. And people are coming to faith. These women are serving. They helped reunite a homeless man with his lost dog because they knew the dog by name and they saw the dog posted on social media after he was lost and they reunited him under the bridge. And then when you have the interconnectedness of somebody wants to get off the street, well, we got somebody else that's working in a restaurant and we got someone else with a cosmetology school. So this homeless person goes over and gets a haircut and gets cleaned up and looks nice and then goes over and interviews to get a job as a dishwasher and then because they're tithing into the restaurant, they turn around and cover a few months' rent for this person that's coming off the street so that they can come off the street, get cleaned up, get a job, get their life in order, and they find faith along the way. This is the beauty of the people of God going, this restaurant is my place of mission. This cosmetology school is my place of mission. Under the bridge in this homeless encampment is my place of mission. I think part of our problem is that we don't slow down enough. Pay attention, listen. We just want to feel like we're doing the godly things that we're supposed to do. I'm guilty. How about you? We want to feel like we're doing the right thing. And sometimes in doing that, we do more harm than good. You know that in Harrisburg, there was an encampment living under the bridge. Well, a group of Christians from a local church said, we're going to take food down and we're going to deliver it to these homeless people under the bridge. And so groups of Christians were traveling down and dropping off food under the bridge for the homeless people. They didn't have a relationship with the homeless people. They didn't know them. They didn't sit with them. They didn't stay long. They dropped it off, said hi to a few people, and left and thought that they were doing good for the kingdom. Do you know that the homeless people didn't know them? They're not going to eat food from people they don't know. The food just sits there, which attracts the rats. And then uh, uh, a whole bunch of rats are on the bridge. They're eating the food, and then they're eating through the pavement on the bridge. And then the rats, because they're eating through the pavement on the bridge, compromise the integrity of the bridge, which causes the encampment to have to move. And the Christians and their desire to feel like they're doing something loving actually displaced a bunch of homeless people. Do you see what I mean? However, when I talk about this woman and her group of friends that go and sit with the people for six hours and listen to them and love them and know them and know what they like to eat and know what size t-shirt they wear, I say this, Mission requires that we're local, that we're one of the people, that we know them, that we identify with them, that people would go, she's my person. That's my guy. I know him. We got to slow down enough. You can't do relationships well in a hurry. You can't do relationship with God or with others well in a hurry. So my invitation on this journey of mission and kingdom of God and being the people, being the light, wherever we happen to be, 
is to actually not burn ourselves out. It's to slow down. It's to slow down and be present. It's to waste time with people because it's not a waste of time. Does that make sense? Thank you for listening to part two of Activating Your Life on Mission Given by Mike Jarrell. If you have any questions, please contact us at NC4. Thanks and have a blessed day.